מי שנכנס לדר מרבין בשמחה. And you kind of wonder if it's Chodesh Adar, then we should be tooling up for Purim. Don't get scared. We still have another five weeks plus to get started. But you wonder why it is that we violate an essential halachic principle every few years when we have two Adars. What is the halachic principle? As an example, every morning, those of us who are in the extreme minority today in this room, put on tefillin. I can't speak for the rest of you, but I'm making assumptions. And I have to make sure that when I go in, the first tefillah that I grab, singular of tefillin, is tefillah shaliyad. Because otherwise I run into a halachic problem, which is mentioned in the end of the third parak of Menachot, which is that if I touch the shalrosh first, I actually have to put it on first. And the order is shalyad and then shalrosh. That's why the thermos tefillin, that's what the TSA calls it, the thermos tefillin, uh, you have to make sure to put the shalrosh at the bottom and the shalyad on top. Because we have a principle which is ein ma'avirin al ha-mitzvot. You're not allowed to pass by a mitzvah, to, um, to walk past it and ignore it. And it's a principle which is halachic in its application, but conceptually, it's really an idea. It's not just an action. Which is, when you have the opportunity to do a mitzvah, you don't want to pass it by. And here, every few years, we do that as a nation. We come to Chodesh Adar, and we say, ah, we'll do it next month. And the truth is, this is the source of a dispute, a three-way dispute, in a brighter that's quoted in Masachet Megillah near the beginning of the first parak, about which month we should be celebrating it, with the three following options. Option number one, you already know, which is, you have to do it in Adar Bet, which would mean that even in the days before a set calendar, if we had celebrated Purim approximately nine days from now, and then, two days later, Beitin decided to add another month, we'd have to do it again. Because we didn't do it right. The second approach is to say, no, Adar Rishon is the proper Adar. And therefore, we should be celebrating it nine days from now. And the third option is that ideally it's an Adar Sheni, but if we did an Adar Rishon, Yatsah. We, of course, adopt the first position. We all know it. And now that we have a set calendar, there's really nothing to talk about. We know that we do it in Adar Sheni. And the question is, why? So the arguments fly back and forth. And the starting place of the argument is a phrase in the Megillah. We're not in the source sheet yet. A phrase in the Megillah which is, La'asot shana And the notion that's understood by Chachamim is that every year Purim should be celebrated in the same exact way. So the argument goes, Ma'akol shana v'shana, Adar ha'samuch Nisan. Just like every year it's the Adar next to Nisan. So it should be also. What's the counter? Ma'akol shana v'shana, Adar ha'samuch l'shvat. Right? Every year it's the Adar that comes right after Shvat. So that one's a toss-up. And then we have that overriding principle that we started with two minutes ago, which is, Ein ma'avirin ala mitzvot. We should right away do the mitzvah that, uh, that opportunes itself to us earlier. And we should do Purim and Adar Aleph. 
And the final line, which you can find at the very top of the second page, which is the knockout punch, which helps decide the halacha, is four simple words. Mismach geula legeula adif. Having the celebration of Purim be juxtaposed, be close to the celebration of Pesach is an even more overriding principle. Now, I think even more overriding is probably a redundant phrase and repetitive to boot. But the idea that we should have Purim be attached to Pesach trumps, gotta be careful I say it these days, but uh, overrides the principle of Eim Avirin Alamitzvot. And what I'd like to explore with you over the course of the next 50 minutes is why is Mismach Gula Legula so powerful? Why is attaching Purim to Pesach such an important principle that it overrides Eim Avirin Alamitzvot and it has us walk past Adar Rishon with, okay, we don't say Tachanun on Yudalad and Tetvav and Purim Katan, and, of course, the high schools do not know about Adar Aleph and Adar Bet, so we celebrate for two months. They already had a dunk tank in our high school last week. But uh, we don't celebrate Purim until Adar Sheni. We've got to see why that is. We're going to come back around to it, but I want to start with asking you a very different question. If I ask you, when is the first day of Pesach? What will you answer me? This year it's April 20th, you'll tell me it's Shabbat, you'll tell me the Seder's on Friday night, and those of us stuck in Chutzlars have another one Saturday night, okay. If I ask you what day of the week is Shavuot this year, you'll tell me Sunday. Saturday night's a Tikkun, Sunday's Shavuot. Okay, those of us stuck in Chutzlars, Monday too. We know the date. Purim is the only holiday in the calendar that when you ask that question, you answer it like a Jew should answer a question. How does a Jew answer a question? With a question. When somebody asks me, when is Purim? I don't give them an answer. I ask them a question. What's the question I ask them? What, what city do you live in? Now, we're all familiar with this, but let's step back for a second and see how strange that is. There is absolutely no other moed, whether a Chag in the Torah, whether Chanukah, whether modern-day holidays that we have, yeah, Yom HaTzmaut shifts from day to day, but everybody does it the same day. And yet, Purim, or you're from Yerushalayim, you got a different day. Chevron, same day as Yerushalayim. Tveria, Safek. It's weird. And we see it here in the first source. Take a look at the first page. The first source is the first Mishnah Masachat Megillah. <clears throat> Now, makes it sound like, yeah, we're being very limiting about porn. You only have five different days on which you could read Megillah. That's pretty expansive. We don't ever say, yeah, you got five different nights you could do Haggadah. Yeah, yeah, you got a few different weeks to choose to sit in a sukkah. We don't have that. But with Megillah, you got five different days. Now, it's not exactly your choice, because the Mishnah then continues. And that itself is kind of strange, and we're going to touch on that. Cities that were walled at the time of Yoshua. Which means, by the way, today they might not have a wall around them. What's even more surprising is they may not have had a wall around them during the time of the Purim story. 
But if they had a wall around them at the time of Yoshua, then they read Bachamishasa. They read on the fifteenth. Kfarim va'ayarot gedolot korin be'arbaasar. Large towns and villages all read on the fourteenth. So where did eleven, twelve, thirteen come in? We'll talk about that for a minute. Ela shakfarim makdimin liyomaknisa. Here Chachamim adjusted things based on a sad reality. The sad reality is that among the Jews who were living in Eretz Yisrael during the period of the Mishnah and earlier, there were a lot of people who were living in isolated places on farms, and many of them were uh, not fully literate, shall we say, and were not capable of having their own Megillah reading. However, throughout the Near East during those days, there were two market days a week. This one wasn't a Jewish thing, it was the local commerce. Monday and Thursday. That's why Ezra made a takana that the Beit Din should be in session every Monday and Thursday. And since the Beit Din was in session, so that when anybody was coming in from their farms to trade, they could also come to the Beit Din with questions and with, with a suit or a claim against someone, they also established a public Torah reading so the people should at least hear the Torah twice a week, Monday and Thursday. And then they made a rule that said that if market day happens during the 11th, 12th, or 13th, and on the 14th you're going to be at home because it's not market day, you can read earlier. Of course, you're not going to be reading earlier. Who's going to be reading? One of the townsfolk will read for you because he knows how to read. So let's say that uh, the 14th was on Sunday. We have that sometimes. Purim happens on Saturday night, Sunday. Then they would come in on the Thursday before, which is the 11th, and somebody would gather all of the villagers together and read for them. This halacha has been out of practice for over 1,500 years. And, and they would fulfill the mitzvah early. But the essential halacha is the 14th or the 15th, and that's a halacha still in vogue. When I was uh, younger, and I was in yeshiva in Yavne at the time, in Kerem Yavne, we celebrated Purim on the 14th, and then the 14th in the afternoon got on a bus, went to Shalim, and did it all over again. Two separate days. I vaguely remember those days. In any case. Um, but we have this strange halacha of two different days, and we want to figure out what that's about. And believe it or not, we're going to connect it to our first question, which is the association with Pesach. One side point I wanted to touch on here, which actually will give us an opportunity to look a little bit, to look at the methodology of Chachamim in studying Megillat Esther specifically and Tanakh in general. Megillat Esther has two unique features to it. They're not unique, but they're uncommon. One uncommon feature of Megillat Esther is that much, if not all, of Megillat Esther is a translation. Think about it. There is no single conversation in Megillat Esther between two Hebrew speakers. Which means none of the conversations in Esther took place in Hebrew. I promise you. Haman never said to Ahashverosh, Yesh no Amechad Mefuruzav Forad Ben Hamim. He said it in either Farsi or Aramaic, but didn't say it in Hebrew. Now the advantage, which is also the challenge, and sometimes the deficiency of a translation, is that when you translate, the translator chooses which word to use and may have a wide selection to choose from as far as what word to pick. Chachamim were very sensitive to that because when the Megillah was written in Ivrit, Baruch HaKodesh, 
That means the words that were selected were selected with an aim to teach us more than just the story. Somebody who reads Migilat Aster in English, very nice story. Intrigue, some deception, bad guy and the good guy. It's entertaining. And I think they made a movie of it. But if you read it in Ivrit and you know Tanakh, it's so much richer. It's so much deeper. And Chachamim and the Midrashim do that. They pick up on the connections and they, and they associate it and weave other parts of the story in between the lines. It's not a plug. In between the lines of the story of Megillat Esther to give us a richer sense of the story. Point number two about Esther, and then we're going to see those together. Point number two about Esther, which is true about Esther, but it's true about almost every book in Tanakh, but it's more prevalent in Esther. Books in Tanakh are aware of earlier books in Tanakh. And books in Tanakh comment on, utilize, and make allusions to earlier stories in Tanakh. A couple quick examples. In Sefer Devarim, we hear the law, we read the law of the firstborn child. The firstborn son is supposed to get a double portion. How is that law presented? It does not say simply, when you have a few sons, the eldest son gets double. Instead, it presents a scenario. And what's the scenario? If a man has two wives, one is, we'll say perhaps, more favored and one is less favored. Let's give them names. Let's say um, uh, maybe Rachel and Leah, just as an example. And they, give, they bear children, sons to him. And the eldest one is born to, uh, what do we call Leah, right? Okay, uh, let's give him a name. Let's call him Ruvain, just for the heck of it. Alright? I skipped the first half of the Pasuk, but when he dies, he's not allowed to favor and give the Bechorah to the Ben Ha'ahuvah. Let's give him a name. What? Yosef, maybe. Okay. Um, he cannot favor him over Ben Hasnuah. He has to recognize and acknowledge the eldest son, even if that son is born of the least favored wife. Now, why is the text using that word, those words, instead of just simply saying, if you have sons, the first son is, gets a double portion? The text is clearly commenting what? It's commenting on Yaakov. Is it critiquing Yaakov? Is it making, it's saying before Matan Torah this is okay, but after Matan Torah it's not okay? That's Parshanut. But there's no question that the text is referencing Yaakov. Read the story of Bil'am's journey and put it next to the Akedah and you see a commentary. You see allusions. A man on a donkey getting up early in the morning with two lads having an encounter with a malach. Almost death. Then being spared. The parallels are pretty clear. And we find this throughout Tanakh in Yehoshua Parake, Yehoshua encounters a malach in Yericho. And what does the malach say to him? Take your shoes off. I'm not Kodesh, you're standing on holy ground. Does that sound familiar? That's Moshe Rabbeinu in Har Sinai. That's Yehoshua in Yericho. One more example, just to bring it home. There was a man who we like, sort of an underdog hero. 
he marries the daughter of the bad guy. The bad guy finally becomes a bad guy and wants to do in his son-in-law. Who's caught in the middle? The wife. The wife secretly sides with her husband, but not over, not in a confrontational manner, and sneaks her husband out safely. And there are Trophim involved in the story. Who am I talking about? We're talking about Rachel, Yaakov, and Lavan, and we're talking about Shaul and David and Michal. And the story is almost an exact morph. So the fact that later books in Tanakh build on earlier books is that it's, it's right there and Chachamim pick up on it in Midrashim left and right. Megillah Esther is one of the last books of Tanakh to be written and as such has a whole treasure to pick from. And so right at the beginning we read a story about a king who we don't care about, who has a big party that we don't care about, in his palace that we don't care about. And how is that party described? Tchelet, Argaman, Kesef, Zahab, Kavod, and Tiferet. And Chachamim look at those words and they say, I know why those words are there, because what are they hinting to? The Beit HaMikdash. They're hinting to the Big Day Kuhuna. And that's where the entire Agadah of Achashverosh, making the Cheshbon, and making his party when he thinks the 70 years were up, and taking out the clay Beit HaMikdash, and putting on the Big Day Kuhuna, all of that is built on those words. And Esther does this left and right. Does this sound familiar to you? The king should request beautiful young maidens, and they should be all assembled in the capital. Does that sound familiar? Who said that? Beginning of chapter 2 of Esther, Ahasuerus' servants, right? You know who else said it? David's servants at the beginning of Sefer Malachim. David is old and cold. And that's where Abishag Shunamit comes in. Listen to what Chazal said. They're so sharp on this. They, they look at these two and they say, this is a contrast that's brought together to see the difference. Imagine what every mother in Israel would have done when she heard that David Amalek is looking for a wife. Grab her daughter and run. To Yerushalayim. What do you think every mother in Persia did when she heard that Ahasuerus was looking for a wife? Hid her daughter somewhere. And Chazal, by the way, are having a lot of fun with this. Make no mistake, Midrash Esther is, is intentionally humorous and, and a barb. I bring that to your attention because of the next passage, but it's an opportunity also to look at some of the nuances, the broader nuances of Migilat Esther and Midrash Esther. The Gemara asked the question, why we picked Yoshua bin Nun? Why is it that cities that were walled at the time of Yoshua are the cities that read on the 15th? Why are they singled out? If you think about it, it makes no sense. It should either be cities that have a wall today, or cities that had a wall at the time of the story of Esther. I got news for you. Shushan didn't have a wall at the time of Yoshua. Didn't exist yet. So it's a very strange kind of halakha. So in Source 2, the Talmud Bavli says that we use a hermeneutic tool, a tool, tool of parshanut called Gezerah Shava. Gezerah Shava means if we find the same unusual word or phrase in two places, we assume the Torah intends us, or the Tanakh intends us to read them together and to learn from one to the other. 
They learn from the relatively unusual word paruz, which means unwalled. In referencing the Jews who celebrated on the 14th, we're going to get to that towards the end of the Shi'ur. <coughs> they are called Hayudim HaParazim, the unwalled Jews. In a very, very clever and deft move in Tanakh, the word Paruz in ancient Farsi means victorious. It's best been translated the victorious Jews in the unwalled cities. But as far as we're concerned, we're looking only as, as a Hebrew word, paruz, unwalled. In Sefer Devarim, when Moshe is retelling the most recent events, the conquest of the East Bank, defeating Sichon and Og. Og is just below the Golan, in the Bashan. And he says that we defeated 60 walled cities, levad besides all the unwalled cities, many unwalled cities. Now, the question is, why does the author of Megillat Esther use that unusual word paruz? And the Gemara says it's there in order to make an association, which is the unwalled cities in Dvarim were unwalled at the time of Yoshua. All the other cities at the, were walled at the time of Yoshua. And so the text of Megillat Esther uses that unusual word to tell us that Yoshua's time is the time we should work with. That's the Bible. The Talmud Yerushalmi has a whole different take on it. Talmud Yerushalmi, you can see it in Source 3, has a very simple read. Let me ask you a question. We have the Talmud that most of us spend our time studying. It's called Talmud Bavli. And it's a record of the conversations, the discussions, the learning that happened in the Batei Midrash in Bavel. We also have another Talmud, which records the conversations, the learning, the discussions that took place in Tveria, Beit Sharim, Sipori, Shfaram, in the north of Israel. What do we call that? We call it Talmud Yerushalmi, and not one word of it was ever learned in Yerushalayim. Yerushalayim was destroyed at the time, and during much of that period we weren't even allowed to go there. Why is it called Talmud Yerushalmi? Because we love Yerushalayim so much. We want to honor Yerushalayim by calling Talmud Eretz Yisrael, Talmud Yerushalmi. It's the same way that the Talmud Yerushalmi here has to say, why did the halacha of Purim establish itself based on the walls that were up at the time of Yoshua? And this is the Rambam quotes this in the halacha, because Purim happened at a time when the land of Israel was for the most part desolate. And in order to bring back not only kavod to Yerushalayim, but kavod to Am Yisrael, we want to evoke a happy time. A time of conquest, a time of victory. And so they associated with Yoshua bin Nun. Beautiful take. That's the way the Rambam presents it in Hilchot Megillah. One footnote here that's not on the page is the Ritva, Rabbi Yom Tov ben Avraham of Seville, in the 13th century, has the following comment on it. He says, when we celebrate Purim, we're celebrating the extension of a war that's in the Torah. A war against whom? Amalek. Who was the first battler against Amalek? Yoshua bin Nun. So that's the connection with Yoshua. Beautiful little ritva. But just wanted to take you there to see that. Question is, still, why is the holiday a bifurcated holiday? Why is it on two different days? Forgetting about the villages, etc., just the 14th or the 15th. 
Why is it that I could celebrate it in Gush Etzion and then get on a bus or get in my car, maybe let somebody else drive, and go into Shalim and do it all over again? Why does that work? So I want to take you to the second page. And we're going to look at a broad section of a relatively ignored chapter in Megillat Esther. I say relatively because nothing in Tanakh is ignored. But there are those chapters that are discussed and debated and are commonly known. And then there are those that are not as much. I'll tell you a secret. This is recorded, but don't tell anybody else. The first two chapters of Megillat Esther have 6,000 psukim and take 14 hours to read. Ask any kid. Because every kid is standing there saying, when are we getting to Haman already? And by the way, the Valkyria definitely reads the first two prakim at slow pace. Ask any kid. Time's relative. The exciting part of the story for kids, truth is for most, picks up in chapter 3 when what's-his-name walks in. And we jeer and make noise and... And that's when the story really gets kicking. Everything till there is intro and background. And so chapters 3 through 7, which is sort of the rise of Amman till the last rise of Amman. That's he goes up on a tree and doesn't come down. Those are the stories that we talk about a lot. And we have a lot of fun with. And we dissect them. And we see what are the messages for us. And somewhere around Perakhet, to be honest, the interest sort of peters out. And a lot of people listening to me, you guys are like, all right, when are we getting to the end? Chapter 9, which is the longest chapter in the Megillah, is also probably the most halachic chapter in all of Nevim and Tuvim, meaning the one that has the most halachot in it. And I'm just taking a piece of chapter 9. And to understand it, we have to properly understand the, or review the chronology of events. The major events in the story, the Hainu from chapter 3 through chapter 9, the middle of chapter 9, take place over the course of approximately 12 months in the 12th year of the king, 12th year of Ahasuerus. Esther's been queen for five years. She's been in the palace for six years. Remember, a year of prep. And sometime in Nisan, Haman comes to power. Mordechai refuses to bow. Haman gets angry. It could be that it started before that. But the first date we hear about is the 13th of Nisan. And Haman does a lottery. A lottery when he is the most auspicious time to kill the Jews. By the way, the result of the lottery is real bad news for Haman. Because as we see throughout the course of the story, Haman has a real problem with, uh, we'll call it impulse control. Right? He's uh, patience challenged. How's that? And for, be told, he has to wait 11 months and every day walk in and out of the palace and see Mordechai standing there, running a little sniff in Akiva and singing Yarachim or singing Hatikva, whatever he's doing, is real bad news for Haman. By the way, why doesn't Haman ask for a do-over? Let's try a different, let's see if we get a closer month. Because Haman also believes in his religion and that the lottery is a pagan rite. We actually a few years ago found what may be the kind of cube they used for this lottery. And so he got the last month of the year, Adar. Okay. And so all through that period, all the story is cooking. And by the way, by the, by the, way, by the time Adar rolls around, Haman is already decomposed. 
He's quite dead and quite gone. And comes the 13th of Adar, and all H-E double sticks breaks loose in the kingdom. Throughout the kingdom, tremendous battling. And let's pick up the story, we're going to read it. If you remember, Esther came into the king and gave him a request. The request was to take the ten killed sons of Haman, they had already been killed, and string them up so everybody could see. And second thing is, we need another day to fight in Shushan. So the Jews fought also on the 14th. Another 300. And again, they did not take any of the loot. And you can follow most of the English, most of it in English below. Seventy-five thousand people killed out in the country. And they again did not take any of the loot, even though they had a right to. And here's where we get cooking. I'm going to stop right now and ask you a question. It's going to inform the rest of what we do. Who established the holiday of Purim? Who mandated that we have a holiday of Purim every year? What do you think? Mordechai, Esther, Anche Knesset Agdolah, you'll be surprised. I'm going to ask you a different question. What's the name of the holiday? Purim. What language is that? Oops. It's a hybrid language. The im at the end is the Hebrew plural. But the word poor is a Persian word. What does it mean? Lottery. And we're told that in Paragimel when it says he peeled poor, hu hagoral. So why isn't the holiday called goralot? Or better yet, why isn't it called chag mordechai or chag Esther? Instead it's called chag purim. Keep that in mind, we'll see. So what happened? The Jews gathered on the 13th what did they do on the 14th? They rested. There was this landslide, the war was over, and they rested. What did they do on the 14th? Party. Where was the party? What do you think? I, we don't know, but just what do you imagine? A tremendous victory on the 13th. What do you think the party was? What? It's probably out in the street. Everybody's... Come out and celebrate. I know. I've been in L.A. through several victory celebrations, the Lakers. Everybody goes out to the street and celebrates. It's spontaneous. It's better not to be in the street because spontaneous turns into dangerous. But it's spontaneous. Everybody's out in the street. They bring their wine. They bring their meat. They're having a great time. Party. Keep that in mind. This is the year it happened. And they celebrate the next day. The Jews in Shushan got together and fought when? 13th and the 14th. They needed another day. And we have to talk about why. We'll do that in a minute. And they fought for two days because they had the right of the king to fight for one more day. When did they rest? On the 15th. Same thing. Party. By the way, you notice this party has no rituals to it. Notice that? There's no mitzvot here. Just party. Makes sense. We just got saved. Party. And now, this is the key pasuk. Okay. Hayyuhudim haparazim hayoshvim barayah prazot. We met them already. The Jews in the unwalled cities. Osim et yomar ba'asar l'chodesh adar. What does osim mean? What's the tense? Ongoing. Ongoing. So the Jews in the unwalled city, ongoing. What do they do? They celebrate the 14th of Adar, Simcha Umishteh Yom Tov, and now there's a first ritual added, which is 
Mishloach Manot Ish Let's talk about Mishloach Manot and figure out why they added that in. Now this is just theorizing, but I think it's pretty safe, pretty solid. The first year, what do we do? The year it happened, what do we do? Party out in the streets, spontaneous. And at some point they decided, next year, what do we want to do? We want to have a party. When? On what day? On the 14th. When should they be celebrating? What was the day of the victory? The 13th. They should be celebrating on the 13th. Instead, they're celebrating on the 14th. Let me ask you this. Um, we have a, a holiday, about 50 years old, that many of us celebrate with tremendous happiness, and that is Yom Yerushalayim. When do we celebrate Yom Yerushalayim? On what day? On the day we conquered Yerushalayim, the 28th of Iyar. But we didn't do it that first year. That first year, you know when we celebrated it? Shavuot. A week after, about three days after the war was over, suddenly everybody streamed to the Kotel. And that was when the celebration happened. It went on for a long time. But we don't do it annually. Annually, when do we celebrate? The day of the victory. Not the day of the celebration. We're celebrating a victory. What are they celebrating here? They're celebrating a celebration. But when you have time to plan a party, what do you do? You decide where you're going to have it, and you invite certain people, and you can't have everybody. It's not spontaneous. There's a menu. And there's a list. So we're going to have a porn party, and we're going to invite all of you and your families. Great. That's 100 people. I can't have any more in my house. 100 people. You guys are going to have your own party. Another 100 people. How do we keep some of the spirit of the original celebration of one big party alive? So you bring some of your food over there. Do you bring some of your food over there? That's Ahmanot. It's simply interconnecting the parties. But that's all that they added in. And they decided to celebrate on the day of the celebration. And it says it right. We'll see it in a minute. What city is not celebrating here? Shushan. Why isn't Shushan celebrating? What? A year later, why aren't they celebrating? The year later, what? So why don't they celebrate on the 15th the next year? So let's think about it. Jews throughout the Persian Empire, as far as we know, lived in Jewish cities. Why were they under any threat on the 13th of Adar? Because their cities didn't have walls around them. And people from the next city could come and, and fight them. They fought them off. They won. What's the only city we know of where Jews are living among non-Jews? Shushan. So the Jews win. They have the upper hand. I want you to imagine what it would be like for the Jews in Shushan to have a big party on the 15th of Adar a year later. And the neighbor leans down and says, what are you guys celebrating? Oh, we killed your uncle. It's not going to work very well. So the Jews don't celebrate. Who steps in? Vayichtov Mordechai. Who's Mordechai? Who is he? What hat is he wearing? He's wearing one hat which says, most important Jew around right now. And we have another hat that says, Mishnah Melech. Alright, watch this. He sends letters to all the Jews. And what does he say in that letter? That they have to accept. Yom Arbasa Adar, Yom Chamisha 
What did Mordechai command them that must do? They must celebrate the 14th and the 15th, Bechol Shana Bishana. Kayamim, and here's the kicker, Asher Nachu What are they celebrating? The days that they celebrated. Not the days they won. Which, by the way, if you think about it, takes a little bit of the sting out of the animosity. We're celebrating a celebration, not a victory. Okay. So Mordechai is the one who now, if the Jews in Shushan start celebrating, it's, what are you celebrating? You killed my uncle. Says, Sorry, it's king's orders. I can't do anything about it. Here. Document. Mordechai gives them cover, if you will. And now the Jews are celebrating a celebration. And they're celebrating on the 14th in the cities that had no walls. And they're celebrating on the 15th in Shushan, which becomes the model for walled cities. They should all be celebrating on the 13th. Why are they celebrating on the 14th and the 15th? And now this is the larger question. You are a Jew living in the Persian Empire in the 5th century BCE. A terrible threat of annihilation against all of us has been raised, and we've been saved. Through the machinations of Mordechai, and most critically through the brilliance of Esther, her psychological intuition, and her ability to manipulate her enemies. It's an amazing, amazing story. We are saved. We want to celebrate properly. Do we have any model in our tradition? Do we have any model in our history? Do we have any model in the Torah? Where we were under threat, we were miraculously saved, and then we find a way to thank HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Is there any such thing in the Torah? Is there? Is there anywhere in the Torah that says, you people were saved, here's how to thank God? Yeah, Pesach. It's the granddaddy of it all. So you look at Pesach. You say, well, let me see, what is it we do on Pesach? So we're going to answer that question, but I'm going to take another detour. What do we do on Purim? And start with before Purim. Start with three weeks from now. What? We fast on the 13th. Excellent. Excellent. Keep that fast in mind. That's critical. Even before the fast, what do we do? Misha? Marmisimcha. We make the fast. Then on the 13th, we fast. What else do we do? Give me the whole gamut from mitzvot to minhagim. What? Read Megillah. What else? What? Big party. Matanot avyonim. What else? Mishloach manot. What else? Hmm? Uh, we have Parshat Zachor before, correct? Very good to associate it with Amalek. Good. What? You guys are missing with some of the most fun stuff. Costumes. Costumes. Masquerade. And silliness. I know it's weird to come to a shir and have somebody in a very stern voice say silliness, but silliness. It's part of porn. If I were to start telling you about the shtick that our students have pulled in school, and I can't tell you about the shtick we pulled, I can't tell you that. You'd probably answer me back with better stuff. Me own children, maybe that you remember yourself. Shtick! Craziness. That's what we do. Why? Why is that? So let's go back to Pesach. 
What is it that the Torah commands us to do at Pesach? Eat matzah. Good. What else? Hmm? Tell the story. Korban Pesach. Good. Keep going. Korban Pesach, matzah. Tell the story. What else? Four cups of wine. Excellent. What? Haggadah. Good. What else? Haseba. We have four cups of wine. What are we supposed to do the three or four hours before the Seder? Besides go crazy. We don't eat so much, right? What? Chametz is gone. Chametz is gone. All of those are a bunch of modular halachot. Except they're not. They're part of a single picture. To put it very simply. You know, what? Remember, I'm going to take you one more. Re-experience, but I'm going to take you one more. In order to make Pesach the single most successful, continuous Jewish event in history, which it continues to be, do you know that there are more people, more Jews, who will sit down to a Pesach Seder this year than will be in Shul for Yom Kippur? They will light candles for Shabbat? They will even think about going to Israel? A few years ago, Bruce Springsteen on his tour was doing a concert, Seder night at Madison Square Garden. So a bunch of the fans rented out a room above, had a Seder, then went to the concert. I'm not justifying it. Jews go to a Seder. It might be a weird Seder. It might be a, the Seder of the liberated lamb. It might be who knows what. But a Seder. You know what makes the Seder so successful? Well, one thing as clear as food. Okay. But what do we do with the Seder? We tell a story, and we act out a story. If you just tell a story, okay, everybody sit around, and for the next three hours I'm going to talk. Boring, and it'll last one generation at best. Would it die in its tracks? If on the other hand, all you do is reenact without a context, it also dies in its tracks. It makes no sense. Brilliantly, and by the way, we keep reinventing the Seder. How many of you remember what? Correct. But what do we do with it? We tell the story and we act it out. And I'm going to touch on some of those specifics that we mentioned in a minute. How many of you remember, I'm looking around, I'm guessing some of you may, the 1970s when we had an empty seat at the table for the Jews in the Soviet Union? How many of you remember the 1980s when we had the same empty seat for the Jews in Ethiopia? And how many of you remember the early part of this century when he had an empty seat for Gilad Shalit? I remember as a, as a kid, the Seder at our house, there was one at the shul and one at the house. The one at the house, Eliyahu and Avi, opened the door. We all were in a circle and we sang the Animamin from Bergen-Belsen. And that was our Shoah moment. The Seder is a continually evolving process in which we do what? We tell a story which is a timeless story. And we act it out. The Ritva has a beautiful take on why it is that we don't eat just before the Seder. For the few hours before the Seder we don't eat, come to the table like a slave. Feel like a slave. And the poorest Jew is supposed to have four cups of wine and recline. Why? Zecher l'cherut. We should all remember, reenact, that we were all noblemen when we left. The Seder is about telling and doing and woven together in a way that consistently is meaningful, speaks to everyone there, that's the challenge. 
and has legs. We've been doing it for quite a long time, and it, it has no sign, it shows no signs of aging. All right, so you're a Jew living in Persia. You've had this tremendous cessation. What do you do? You take a page from Pesach. So what do you do? You celebrate the celebration. You celebrate on the day that we're celebrating. You reenact. What is it you're reenacting? Not the victory. You're not going to go out and kill a bunch of people every year. You're reenacting the celebration. So what else do you do? Let me ask you, what did everybody, in, all the Jews in the Persian Empire do on that year, the year of the battle, on the 13th of Adar? They all fought, right? They all fought. What about the people who were in their 80s, or the people who were 3 years old, well, 10 years old, or the women who were pregnant? What did they do? Right, and they fasted. And they fasted. One of the two major opinions that we have about what Tanit Esther is, is we're reenacting the war. But our side of the war, which is which is fasting. Why do we start Adar with Simchat? Because the entire season is Simchat, but why the shtick? Well, I've got to be honest with you. If you read Megillat Esther, it's kind of funny. Especially from a distance. And much of it is deliberately sarcastic. Sort of sat, sat, satiric, really. We have Haman sitting there. I mean, it, I almost laugh to think about it. It's Haman sitting there begging for his life because the jig is up. And suddenly he falls over on top of Esther just as the king walks in. It's laughable. And Chazal take a cue from this and make it more laughable. Because you know what Chazal have there? Chazal have a malach kicking him in the behind, knocking him over on top of Esther. The Midrashay Esther are, are humorous, deliberately, because the entire story is from a distance. It's not humorous when you're in the middle of it and you've got a noose around your neck. But that's the style of it. What is it we reenact? We celebrate on the day of the celebration the same way they did. We make sure to include everybody in the celebration. We share food with each other. We make sure the poor are included. But it's not enough to celebrate. What else do you have to do? You have to tell the story. Because otherwise there's no context. So what do we do? We tell the story, then we act it out. Megillah Esther. Megillah is like Haggadah. Korban Pesach and Matzah and Maror are all Mishloch Manot. It's the same thing. It's reenacting it. What did we do in that year in Mitzrayim? We ate a Korban Pesach. And what did we do first? We cleared all the Chametzah. We reenact. So I want to spend a minute on costumes. As costumes, which is a custom that goes back at least to the 14th century, maybe earlier, is a fairly well-established minhag among all Edot. Why costumes? So I want you to look at the story of Esther. Nobody is who they seem to be. You meet a king at the beginning who is high and mighty, and he's paranoid and scared. By the way, he's the king of the Persian Empire, and he cannot make a decision. What happens when he gets angry? He calls a meeting. What happens when he's infuriated at his wife? He asks his counselors what to do. He only makes one decision in the whole thing which is when he sees Haman lying on top of Esther inside his own palace, he's, and then Harona says, oh yeah, he's got a gallows for Mordechai. He says, all right, string him up. What? Really? Where did he ever say anything to do Ashti? He just called the counselors, asked them what to do. And we don't even know what they did. We don't even know what the decision was. Look through the Megillah. We have no idea what happens to Vashti, which is a very cool thing. How about, uh, 
How about Mordechai? He's the second guy we meet. What does Mordechai look like? And we're not even going to talk about the name Mordechai right now. What does Mordechai look like? I know we all grew up with the storybooks with the Strymal and everything else. What does Mordechai actually look like? Well, let me just point this out. What? Pashat Yid. Pashat Yid with his talisman filling under his thing because he didn't have time to come home from Shul. The only problem is that Mordechai in Paragimel, when he refuses to bow, and by the way, he has not, he's been there for at least six years working in the palace, day in, day out. Nobody knows he's Jewish until he says he's a Yehudi. His co-workers don't know he's Jewish. I'm not saying what he looked like or what he did, but just look at that. How about Esther? But who is Esther in the Megillah? His cousin, right? In the Megillah. In Midrash, but in the, in the Megillah, she's his cousin. What does she look like? She's beautiful, no question. And brilliant. What religion is she? Nobody knows. Nobody knows. And she's somebody with attention on her 24-7, 365, 120. She's always got eyes on her, and nobody knows she's Jewish until she speaks up. Years later. How about Haman? Haman looks like, at least not to us, but a loyal, trusted advisor. It turns out he's actually a traitor trying to kill the king, take over. Read Paragvav very carefully. He's trying to do a, pull a coup and become the king. Nobody is who they think they are. And think about Mordechai. How many... Okay, the easiest way to do this, I'm sorry, from L.A., Hollywood, think scenes. But it's easy to do near here near Broadway. Imagine you're putting on the stage production of Esther without Andrew Lloyd Webber's interference. So you're staying close to the text. How many garment changes do you need for Mordechai? What's Mordechai wearing when you first meet him? His work clothes. Then what does he put on? Sackcloth and ashes. Back to the work clothes. Then royal garments. Then work clothes. Then the special garments he goes out with the king. Then work clothes. And then his royal garments that are different garments that he wears as Mishnah Melech. Eight different sets of clothes. So we can play with the Kohen Gadol image, and that's good. And Chazal loved to introduce the Mikdash into this. But Mordechai is a man of many costumes. And who's got the biggest costume on in this whole Megillah? Kadosh Baruch Hu is hiding behind the curtains. He's there everywhere and we don't see him. So the entire story is Sipur Betach Poset. It's a story in costume. So what do we do? We wear costumes. In other words, how do we celebrate Purim? We take a page from Pesach. We tell the story and we act out the story. We act out the silliness. We act out the joy. We act out the party. We act out the fasting and the tribulation. We act out the association with Amalek by having Parshat Zachor be that Shabbat. We connect it with that. Give it a historic context and a religious context, meaning a grander context in that sense. We do all of that in order to copy the pattern established for us by HaKadosh Baruch Hu when it comes to Pesach. Do you understand why we celebrate on different days in different cities? Because we're not celebrating the victory. We're celebrating the celebration. 
And in some cities they celebrated on the 14th and in others on the 15th. And in a sense that tells us two powerful things. Powerful thing number one is this Megillah is Megillah Tagalut. It's the only Megillah that takes place in absentia of Eretz Yisrael. The only time Eretz Yisrael is mentioned here is as a place to be away from. Perak Bet, Pasuk Vav. But the second thing is, and, and that's the tribulations of Eretz Yisrael's division, of Galut's division. But the second thing is that we are celebrating the celebration that took place separately in different cities and at different times. And where you live is going to determine what your tradition in that city has always been. That's not the same. But now we can understand why we wait a month. Which is what we started with 55 minutes ago. Why do we wait a month to celebrate Purim? Why don't we celebrate Purim next week? On the 14th of Adar. Why do we wait till the 14th of Adar bet? Because mismach geula ligula adif. It's more, more powerful. It's an overriding concern to have Purim and Pesach be close to each other. There's a pragmatic reason, which some of the Rishonim suggest, which is so that people will always know, when I get up from Sudat Purim, I have four weeks from that night as B'dikat Chameitz, and it's a simple Cheshbon, never make a mistake. But there's something much more powerful going on. Purim is built on Pesach. Purim is associated with Pesach because Purim is modeled after Pesach. And the way that we celebrate and commemorate and reenact the tremendous nace of survival in Galut is premised on and built upon the foundations established for us at Pesach. And hence, mismach gula ligula adif. And we prefer to have Purim be a month later and have it closer to Pesach. Indeed, as Chazal say, is Pesach tchilat kol hanisim and Esther is sof kol hagulot. So the end of that whole period, in the biblical period, is the very end. Of course, there's yet a gula that we are in the throes of experiencing now, which we are in tremendous debt to our Kaddish Baruch Hu. But today we're speaking about Gulot of the past that we celebrate in the present and in the future. Everybody should have a very joyous Adar, a great celebration, a month plus from now, and a really, really happy Pesach too.